from the WGN Skyline Studio. WGN Radio presents a conversation. I want to make one thing perfectly clear. A dialogue. What are you prepared to do? An astute debate. Everything that's in the law. And a peek behind the curtain of politics. And then what are you prepared to do? I think Chicago is not only the center of the country, I think it's the center of the world. Don't tread on them. Where did this statement come from? This is the Sunday Spin. Your host is the Chicago Tribune's Rick Pearson. Good Sunday morning, everyone. I'm Rick Pearson of the Chicago Tribune, and welcome to this edition of the Sunday Spin for October the 13th, 2019. Welcome to our weekly look at the world of politics and policy, going from City Hall to the State House, all the way on to the White House. So get that hot cup of coffee, you'll need it this morning, and grab that Sunday paper as we'll do our best to get your week off to a great start. Well, on Marathon Sunday, this is the time we typically on our program uh, turn the show over to Dave to read the entire list of street closings. <coughs> you ready? Well, we'll begin with a wind chill index of 33. <laughs> That's the good news. That's the yeah. good lakefront, uh, lakefront temperature uh, as the runners will get underway in 20 minutes, uh, 42 degrees. And if you really want to know the entire rundown of no, everything, no, no, no. Uh, we'll, uh, it's amazing. This uh, is the most traffic-challenged day it has to in be. Chicago. It has to be, Always. without a doubt, without a doubt. There are closures as we say rolling closures because they will be set up and taken down as the as the runners go through various neighborhoods through bronzeville through the west loop through pilsen lincoln park of course grant park has been right virtually closed for the setup of this uh, for most of the week and uh streeterville greek town uh as you know again the race moves uh, as far north as sheridan road uh, it also uh, then goes down to 35th Street and then finally making its way back up uh, uh, to uh, State and Michigan Avenue, uh, Columbus, for the, uh, for the finish. Wow. <laughs> uh... <laughs> the finish line uh, roughly at um, Michigan and Roosevelt Road, and then uh, the uh, final, uh, the, you know, the runners will end up at the south end of Grant Park. Right, right, right. Well, I mean, good luck to everybody that's running out there. Uh, I don't know. Is this is it too cold out there? I mean, I was talking with a couple of people that were going to be in the race today, uh, talking to them yesterday. One gentleman came uh, from London, uh-huh. another person in from San Francisco, and uh, they were thinking that it might be a, a little bit cold. They were more concerned about the wind mm-hmm. rather than the cold. And it's certainly, you know, the fact that there's no rain. That's good news. Uh, right now, we are looking at winds uh, southwest at uh, four miles an hour. So that's not much wind out there. No. But with the fact that the temperature is only 42 and a little bit of wind, that gives us that 33 above wind chill index. <laughs> I'll specify that. Boy, it pained me to turn the heat on. Yeah. Didn't it? Yeah, I know. I tried to... Uh, hold off as long as I could. Uh, then I got some bad news. One of my units isn't working. Oh, oh no. <laughs> yeah. So I uh, will uh, be making a call. I thought to you our... just had that done. I did. Ooh, I did. That hurts I'm hoping even more. also that they're still in warranty. Well, <laughs> it's in it's in warranty until you need it. Yeah, right. And then, I think they planned this out. Um, oh, you know, they'll say a year, year and a half warranty, and then at the uh, you know the first week after that ends, right. Something goes wrong. Of course, of course. <laughs> planned so, obsolescence. Planned obsolescence. Yeah, and then they'll come into. Oh, you need a new unit. No, it just it's like all of a sudden we've flipped the switch to really fall. Yeah. But yeah. but thankfully it's not raining. Right. We're yeah. headed up to uh, northern Michigan uh, for a few days this, this week, and it will be on the brisk side. And we're also a little concerned about the rain. Uh, there's rain in the forecast for the Traverse City area uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. So if if there is going to be rain, I hope it's minimal. Well, I was checking in my uh, smartphone app, weather app, and uh, uh, up in Ascove, Minnesota. Yesterday uh, was 32 degrees and snow showers. Yeah. Well, considering they had a huge snowstorm around Bismarck, North Dakota this week. Right, right. And they've already had one in Montana. Uh, 
We're getting off to an early start here. Yes, aren't we? we are. Yes, we are. <laughs> Last night, some of the Winnipeg Jets announcers were showing us their pictures from their front yards. <laughs> <laughs> like four to five inches, and they said the heavy, wet stuff, too. I'm like, come oh, on. Oh. We, we just jumped into late fall yesterday. We can't be thinking about this already. Well, that had to have been the best part of your uh, night at, at, at United Center last you night. You know, it's funny, Rick. I, when I last covered a Sunday, what was it, two weeks ago, you were full-on, done with baseball mode, ready for hockey, and here you are in all full baseball gear. Have you <laughs> turned the corner already for 2020? Uh, I, I, I wore my sweater yesterday. You know, kind of, let's let's go, let's go. And, uh, yeah, oh two 2 and one Hey, we got a point. Yeah. We got a point. It was uh it was a good start. I still I still really like a lot of the things this offense can do. I mean, 9 goals in 3 games which uh, yesterday that that average dipped with only 2 goals, but I mean, you see Andrew Shaw the other day oh, uh, with his two goals yeah, and then muscle up muscle right in the blue paint, you know, that was, that right, was great. It was, I was saying he was playing all his hits, you yeah. know, a gritty goal, he instigates a penalty, he gets a penalty. Uh, but it seems like he's working well with these guys. I mean, him and Alex DeBrinkett had a little bit of chemistry in the last game. So, so I mean, that's a good sign. But uh, Jonathan Taves has just been pretty much silent these first three games. Yeah, and uh, uh, once again, uh, just I'm so frustrated by the Hawks' play in their defensive zone. Yes. Um, just the inability to clear the puck out. The inability to to even make crisp passes to get the puck out. Right. Uh, just so many turnovers in their end, and it it it. Uh, I mean, Lena was great last night. Yeah, I liked Leonard. Um, it, it was it was funny. They were talking about it on the television broadcast. How you you won't see him make too many flashy saves, even though he had a really good one yesterday. Because yes, he's just so prone to being in the right spot at the right time, being positioned well. And you did see a lot of that today. He froze a couple pucks in a couple of big spots where the Hawks needed a, a timeout or a whistle. Um, I mean, that's that's quite a pickup they've got in the backup goalie situation. But you're right, Rick. It's it's the defense. Uh, I mean, you look at their three losses. It's it's one goal each each loss. They're just giving up two more than they should at the at the least, and it seems like the energy level is just sliding off after a good start in the first period. It's there. They just they just can't contain it after the first twenty minutes. No, and the second period tends to be a meltdown, and then it's the third period is scrambling, and then they they get they play tense, right? Because they they're going through the same issues they were last year. Granted, the special teams yesterday finally showed something good. A shorty that was a, yeah, you know that was impressive. Uh, that uh, given now we know what the penalty kill is like, but right. a, a shorthanded goal that was nice to see. No, and again that was the first period. Brandon Sod has I noticed this last year. He's just really good at individually making or generating scoring chances. He's just got this little spark that the Hawks totally need at some points, but then once that first intermission hits, they just they lose a little edge and then have trouble with puck management. And then, yeah, I just feel like they play so tense in the third period just because they're, they're kind of desperate for a win right now. Well, and then you go into overtime, and which I always think favors the Hawks because you've got more open space. And skilled players. And Patrick Kane never touched the puck. Yeah, sometimes I feel like overtime can just be a crapshoot, though, too, because you mentioned all the open space, and all you need is one good drive, and all of a sudden the other team's got got a big opportunity. But I agree with you. I feel like the Hawks more than often should have the advantage because of the skill players they have in the open ice like that. But, yeah, it's... um. I don't know. It's it's been rough. It really has. It, it is. You, it and is. you talk to those guys, and they're they're kind of without answers. Like they they understand that they're missing something, and they're and it's funny. Brandon Sod said it might be a lack of focus. I mean, that's that's, that's something that totally seems controllable, right? And and you know we have this seven game homestand, and we've lost two already. You don't get seven game homestands very often. No, and. Uh, We've always had a good home record. This is the time to be putting points on the board. Um, yeah, just just frustrating. Very frustrating. Well, speaking of frustrating, we don't have to talk about the Bears this week. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's... Um, I, I mean, who do you... 
You got a, you got a, you got a couple. I'm talking about the other games that Bears fans might be watching. It. I don't know. Maybe should they shield their eyes for Kansas City and and Texas because those are two quarterbacks that the Bears maybe could have had. Right. Um, but uh, well, you can still shield your eyes and, and listen on 720 WGN because we got the game on today. Yeah, that's great. That's great. <laughs> um, but I, I would say it, it'd probably be best to root for the Packers today too, who are who are playing the Lions. Kind of. Uh, condense the the standings a little bit. I'd rather be, you know, have the Bears fighting for a division against Detroit, or at least you know, have the Packers down a game if the, if they lose to Detroit today. So I feel like today all Bear fans should be Lions fans. Uh, I just I don't know. I'm just I'm just all discombobulated by the football this year. Yeah. Um, a lot of issues, a lot of issues, and a big step back backwards in London. Um, a game where the defense doesn't play to their. But you know, I I was listening to the Hogan Johns podcast. They brought up a great point. Like you can't expect the defense just to be elite every game and bail you out of every game. And I get it; they had their backup quarterback and Chase Daniel, but. You're talking about an offensive line that is still figuring things out. You're talking about some wide receivers that shouldn't be or really aren't playing to their potential right, right now. So there's still a lot of questions with this team. Uh, a work in progress, I guess. But that's the, the thing. It shouldn't be a work in progress no. in year two. This should be a huge step forward. And we're talking about, you know, how is this team going to fare in the playoffs? And right now it's a matter of if they're going to make the playoffs. Which that shouldn't have been a question. Nope. Should not have been an issue. Yeah, frustrating. Uh, but that's why we enjoy sports, right? That's, that's the, why they play the games. That's a good. That's say. a good way to put it. You, you can't. You Let's can't. Have, more, how, how more cliche can I get? That's why <laughs> no. they play the games. Well, hey, you can't have the downfall, or you can't have the the element of joy and celebration without the element of downfall, right? You have to have the contrast right. to appreciate it when everything's going good. Uh, well, Dave's here to keep us up to date on all the news. <laughs> Joe's here with the latest sports. Producer Casera's here to field your phone call. She's at 312-981-7200. You can also text us at 312-981-7200. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash the Sunday Spin. We're on Twitter at symbol Sunday Spin. Engineer Bob is getting the heavy coats out of the closet. Remember, you can find all of our shows on WGNRadio.com. You can also get our podcast at iTunes by searching for my name, Rick Pearson. We're going to take a quick break on this chilly Sunday morning. You're listening to The Sunday Spin on WGN. Welcome back to your Sunday Spin. Uh, turning to the national news, the Washington Post is reporting that the U.S. Ambassador to the European Union, Gordon Sondland, uh, intends to tell Congress this week that the content of a text message he wrote denying a quid pro quo with Ukraine, that was the request of the president, by the way, uh, in that phone call, but earlier denying a quid pro quo with Ukraine, uh, was relayed directly by him by Donald Trump in a phone call. So there's a text message where you have uh, one envoy questioning whether a quid pro quo exists, military aid for digging up dirt on Joe Biden. Later, Sondland, Sondland replies, and it almost looks like a press release, Sondland saying that was dictated by the president, and he doesn't know if it's true or not. That's in the overnight news. You're listening to The Sunday Spin on WGN. Now back to the Tribune's Rick Pearson. It's The Sunday Spin on 720 WGN. Good Sunday morning. Welcome back to your Sunday Spin. I'm Rick Pearson, the Chicago Tribune. Time to spin through a bit of the last week in national politics. And we start with the president's continued attempts to battle House Democrats and their attempts to impeach him. On Thursday night in Minneapolis, Trump touted his record and said it would backfire on Democrats. We have the greatest economy, the greatest military. We've rebuilt our military two and a half trillion dollars because when I took it over, it was a mess. And what do they want to do? Let's impeach our president, right? I don't think so. I don't think so. I think we're going to have a turnout the likes of which we've never seen in the history of our country. Now, former Vice President Joe Biden, who is the target of the acts over which Democrats are seeking impeachment, says the president has basically indicted himself. With his words and his actions, 
President Trump has indicted himself by obstructing justice, refusing to comply with the congressional inquiry. He's already convicted himself in full view of the world and the American people. Donald Trump has violated his oath of office, betrayed this nation, and committed impeachable acts. Now, questions about whether it's proper for a president to seek assistance from a foreign government for political purposes are dominating interviews with lawmakers across the country. Last week in Iowa, Iowa Republican Senator Joni Ernst was asked the question repeatedly. Is it appropriate for a president to ask a foreign power uh, to investigate a domestic political rival, yes or no? Well, again, I think we're going to have to go back, just as I said last week. We'll have to wait. All of that information is going to go to Senate intelligence. But Whether is it appropriate just the ask itself? Is well, it appropriate? We, again, we don't have all the facts in front of us and what we, we see pushed out through the media. We don't know what's accurate at this point. So, again, going through a bipartisan... I'm not asking what's accurate. I'm asking, I'm asking you if it's appropriate for a president to ask a foreign power to investigate his domestic political well, rival, again, yes or no? I would say that I don't know that we have that information in front of us, and I'll just stick with what are I've said all along. Are you concerned? Why won't you answer no, the question? Are you concerned about retribution? No, I am not. What I am saying, though, is that we have a picture that's painted by media, and we don't know what's accurate or not. That's uh, Iowa Republican Senator Joni Ernst of Iowa. Well, now joining me here in the WGN Skyline studio is Kevin Fitzpatrick. Kevin is the incoming president and CEO of Alfred Benich Company. I want to make sure I get that right. And he's part of the National Convention of the American Council of Engineering Companies, which is uh, holding its convention starting today, I believe, in Chicago. Uh, Kevin, thank you for joining me this morning. Oh, thanks for having me, Rick. So who are you guys? Well, the uh, American Council of Engineering Companies is a uh, national organization that represents over a thousand engineering companies across the country, and that that includes six hundred thousand engineers. And really, the the mission of the ACEC is to strengthen the business environment of its members, and that could be through government advocacy, um, some political action, um, but mostly even associated with this conference is business education to strengthen our business environment. Uh, I mean, uh, so it's a, it's a, it's engineers, it's a nerd convention. It is. It's, it's a really, <laughs> it's a great way to put it. And we all get together and talk about nerdy stuff. No, um, I, and I say that with great respect because I have plenty of friends who are engineers and we get into some elaborate conversations, if I can put it that way. Of course you do. Um, no, but some of the, I mean, some of the topics that we'll talk about, um, it's what's really neat is you know there's there'll be companies here that are one or two people and there'll be companies here that are ninety thousand people, and over this week we'll all get together and talk about things that we can do to help each other as much as we compete on a daily basis and a weekly basis for projects across the country. This week we all come together and we do a lo- we do a lot, but especially this week and talk to each other about things that we can help improve our our efficiency at work. Um, even things like uh, employee retention or risk mitigation, some of the hot topics that are going on, um, and try to help each other out. Well, you, you guys are really, you know, when you look at public works, for example, and we, we'll talk in a minute about the Illinois uh, infrastructure bill, but you, you guys are really kind of the, the basic building blocks for uh, the new roads, bridges, uh, water. Uh, containment, those kinds of things that, right. that yeah. we see. I mean, our industry is uh, it's has an intris- intrinsic value to our society. I mean, from the roads, the bridges, the buildings that we live and work in, um, but also our water and wastewater. Um, you know, the airports, the the freight and rail. It all falls on this uh, on this industry. Well, there's no shortage of work that needs to be done. Yeah, that's true, and we're we're seeing some uh, momentum behind getting some of that work done, um, especially uh, here lately in Illinois. Well, and it seems like uh, uh, the, it's the states that have, have taken the real initiative, and of course, here we have uh, finally, uh, as we talked about on this program many times, the the fact of finally having an infrastructure bill approved by the Illinois legislature, uh, $45 billion worth of uh, infrastructure improvements, uh, really almost a decade of, of bef- the, from our last capital bill. And, 
yeah, people don't like to pay a uh, higher gas tax. They don't like to pay the higher license plate fees. Uh, you're even finding with uh, the issue of the passage of the bill and recent FBI raids involving Martin Sandoval, the Senate Transportation Committee chairman who stepped down yesterday from that post, uh, questions about you know efficiencies of spending. Um, but I, I think for the most part, uh, there is a heightened awareness on public works projects about efficiencies in spending. Yes, we and we've seen over the years, um, there's, there have been over 30 states across the country that have recently passed some type of new revenue for their transportation funds, mostly the gas tax. That's really the easiest way to go about it. Um, yeah, actually here in Illinois, it's been since 1990 that we've had, you know, an increase in that. In the gas in tax. In the revenue, right. right. So that and, and it's now it's going to be indexed to inflation, which yes, people are kind of complaining about the increase in the gas tax. But if you actually looked at the inflationary rate, if you had attached it in 1990 to the rate of inflation, it'd be basically the equivalent of what this gas right tax where it increase is, yeah, is, which is our our 38 cents total right now. Um, and you'll see what we've seen. You know, even a 19 cent gas tax. I mean, if you look at that for what that means out of someone's pocketbook, you know, and just averaging 15,000 miles a year in your car and say you get 25 miles to the gallon, that's 600 gallons of gas a year at 19 cents increase. So 115 bucks a year. So that that's less Spread than out 10 bucks a month right. that you'd be, that everyone in the, in the state is going to be contributing. And that's, you know, if you drive less than that or you get better mileage than that, it's even, it's even less than that. So when you think of all the benefits you can have with the congestion relief or even we've seen that some the average in illinois is over five hundred dollars a year people pay on car repair bills on new alignments and broken rims and tires so we believe the value that the citizens of illinois are going to get out of this is going to be tremendous and we we really uh, congratulate our our leadership our political leadership that you know finally had the courage to do something like this and and uh that's what leaders should do. They should make those tough decisions on what they know is best for our state. Well, and I've always argued, too, that things like a gas tax um, and infrastructure taxes or fees or whatever, they're actually the one kind of tangible kind of one place you can see tangible results for unlike where your income tax goes or property taxes go you you actually see a direct one-to-one relationship to money going in to what it produces coming out that's that's right and uh, what makes that especially true in this case is that uh, safe roads amendment that we had a few years ago the, the, the transportation right? lockbox exactly yes. overwhelmingly our our voters told us that they're okay with transportation investment as long as they're sure that that gas tax or that registration fee is actually going towards the improving our infrastructure which not it, being diverted somewhere else which was always the an issue in springfield was the old road fund diversion as they would call it and, and money being taken out of the road fund to go to plug holes and gaps in other parts of the budget and now as part of the constitution uh it can't happen. Not that we have any holes in our budgets or anything. Well, that's a whole other story uh, <laughs> with the with the state budget. We're take, we're speaking with Kevin Fitzpatrick. He's part of the National Convention of the American Council of Engineering Companies, which is meeting in Chicago. I'm Rick Pearson. This is your Sunday Spin. Welcome back to your Sunday Spin. I'm Rick Pearson with the Chicago Tribune, joined here in the Skyline studio by Kevin Fitzpatrick. He's the incoming president and CEO of Alfred Benetch Company, part of the National Convention of the American Council of Engineering Companies. We're talking about uh, uh, engineering, infrastructure improvement, and uh, we've got a call from Ron. Ron, welcome to the Sunday Spin. Yeah, good morning, Rich. Yeah, a question to your guest. I want to ask you, where are we in terms of education? I know in the past there was a concern that we in this country were not producing enough engineers. Um, then, you know, the whole concept with STEM came up. So just kind of let me know where are we as far as um, engineers coming out of um, schools in this country. Thanks, Rick. Thank you, Ron. Kind of took uh, the question right out of my mouth, so that's why I, I went to you, Ron. Thank you so much. So, yeah, what is the status of 
our, our student population as far as engineering uh, difficulties, challenges for engineering companies? Well, certainly there are some some workforce challenges we're finding across the country that with the uh, improvements, not only to the the roads and bridges, but like I mentioned, the environmental issues, the disaster preparation, Mitigation. And resiliency um, across the country. It's taking more and more engineers, and we're seeing that trend has been increasing for the last five years. It's really been a difficult hiring scenario. Um, we're starting to um, really have difficulty even recruiting out of schools. I, I was just recently, I'm on the advisory council down at Purdue University. I was down there on Friday. Um, we're seeing 100% job placement for engineers coming out. We just, you, they have, we're actually at Benish, we're giving our interns job offers as they go back to their senior year in school to try to, to lock in some of the, the quality students. So the universities are preparing to take on more but you also, it's a fine line. You really don't want to um, dilute the quality of the education. Um, but what we'd really want is to work with some of the high schools, you know, through the ACE Mentor Program. The, the pre-higher ed. Right. The, pre, the, the college prep um, really has to be there for more, pe- more folks to get into the, the STEM, the science, technology, engineering, and math curriculums. Um, Highly encourage parents out there, aunts and uncles, encourage those high school students to to get into a STEM education. There's a, a great future in that. But when you look at the competition to get into engineering schools is very intense, and that tends to dissuade some students, doesn't it? It does. Um, you know, the, they have to do their work in high school. That's for sure. Um, it's a. Um, but you know, many of the college curriculums also also are uh, difficult to get into. Um, but we're uh, we're seeing, you know, the need for it. We're seeing the these students coming out of the schools here. You know, all the Big Ten engineering schools here. Since we're in Chicago, are, you know, really fantastic. We're seeing just a a top quality uh, entry level engineers coming out, and uh, we're going to continue to see that in the future. But the job, uh, the number of jobs, still is outpacing the the number of graduates every manager i know every engineering manager is is looking for engineers right now we just we really just can't find them at the career fair last week there were 135 engineering companies and there are 105 graduates and they're looking for more than just one so you can see how that and most of most of the students already had jobs see how do i know we're going to be talking about this at the convention uh, yeah exactly i can, I can right. only imagine shared misery in some respects uh you know we talked about the illinois uh, infrastructure bill and the number the fact that a number of states have raised their gas taxes some of them did so because they thought they would need that money to provide matching funds for a federal infrastructure program do you see any of that any chance of that happening uh, anytime soon sure what a trillion and a half is that what we're gonna have um <laughs> every week is well what it was somebody somebody joked every week is infrastructure week in washington yeah, when the yeah. news gets bad no we're sure hoping and that's one of the things groups like acec and even the american road and transportation builders association um uh that's one thing that we do that this is the fall conference for acec the spring conference is in washington dc every year where we make visits to capitol make the pitch right and make and so there's always you know on both sides of the aisle there's always a desire to improve the infrastructure i mean that's something that creates jobs it creates businesses um it it brings work to the to the country and states uh it always gets down to how we're going to pay for it right so um the gas tax still seems to be the quick way to do it. We're also looking at a vehicle miles traveled, uh, which is a tax. controversial, very it, controversial it issue. We, there's uh, several states doing. Um, I mean, Oregon, I think, yeah, is Oregon's kind of leading the way on that. So that's that's probably a few years out, um, something like that before it's. But it's a it's an idea, and it's you know it's not that gas tax. It's still a user fee based revenue source, right? But the, you then you run into the issues of privacy concerns and and that kind of thing which is i mean when uh governor pritzker brought it up on the campaign trail uh he brought it up in one second and i think he disavowed it 
another five seconds later uh, any any talk of that in lieu of a gas tax but certainly everybody you know looks at the gas tax as, as reliable but part of the problem is is that with better mileage from vehicles uh, it's not you can't cover the nut right and even the and the increasing electric vehicles and the you know the better mileage miles per gallon it's uh the revenue source was going down and the costs of course are going up construction is not getting any cheaper kevin fitzpatrick incoming president and ceo of alfred benesh company part of the national convention of the american council of engineer engineering companies kevin thank you so much for joining me this oh, morning appreciate you having me here thanks rick this is the sunday spin on 720 wgn once again here's rick pearson of the chicago tribune Welcome to the second hour of your Sunday spin. I'm Rick Pearson of the Chicago Tribune. Um, at that Minneapolis rally that the president attended, he defended the pullout of U.S. military forces from Syria that allowed Turkey to invade and battle the Kurds. Uh, news today of uh, nearly 800 uh, ISIS captured, uh, ISIS offenders uh, being freed basically because of attacks by Turkey on to our Kurd, former Kurdish allies. The president defended the move for the U.S. pullout. Here's, here's his response, including a false assertion that most of those captured ISIS forces came from Europe. So in the case of Turkey and Syria and the Kurds, we could send in a thousand troops for a military conflict with Turkey. No, you don't want to do that. <laughs> we could hit Turkey very hard financially. Or we could mediate a deal between Turkey and the Kurds. I like that. You know, let's mediate a deal. But remember, they've been fighting each other for hundreds of years. And we were artificially put there, in this case, by President Obama. So we did our job. We knocked out. And I'll tell you another thing. We have to be treated fairly. We have to be treated fairly. We're not treated fairly by other nations. We captured many, many ISIS fighters. Most of them came from Europe. They came from Germany. They came from France. They came from all of these countries. And we called them. I called them myself in many cases. I said, take your fighters. They said, we don't want them. You take them. That's President Trump in Minneapolis. Uh, actually, uh uh, the figures are that 20% or less of uh, the ISIS fighters uh, that were captured came from Germany or other parts of Europe, uh, according to the U.S. military. Uh, Trump has received bipartisan criticism over the pullout from Syria, including from his staunch Republican ally, Senator Lindsey Graham. It would be hard to protect America without allies over there. And the Kurds have begun out good allies. And when Turkey goes into Syria, they're not going in to fight ISIS. They're going in to kill the Kurds because in their eyes, they're more of a threat to Turkey than ISIS. So I hope he's right. I don't think so. I know that every military person has told him, don't do this. And this is the pre-9-11 right. mentality that paved the way for 9-11. What's happening in Afghanistan is no concern to us. So if he follows through with this, it would be the biggest mistake of his presidency. And that's uh, Republican Senator Lindsey Graham. We're going to bring things local now. And joining me on the phone is my good friend and colleague, Hal Dardick, investigative reporter for the Chicago Tribune. And uh, I wanted to have Hal on the show because he and uh, another colleague of ours, uh, Juan Perez Jr., uh, wrote an excellent piece last week about uh, the issue of uh, city pensions. And we hear so much about pensions and the pension deficit and the toll that paying for the, those those to cover the deficit uh, takes on other uh, valuable services. Um, but this was kind of a, a, a look back uh, in many respects to what have we done to try to clean it up and where have we ended up. So, Hal, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, always my pleasure, Rick. So uh, let's, let's lay out the facts here. We've got... Mayor Emanuel, uh, former Mayor Emanuel, uh, took a number of steps that he said would put us on a path to solvency. What what, what were those steps? Uh, yeah, he, he did a few things. Uh, he raised 
uh, three different taxes, a record property tax increase for police and fire pensions, a 911 fee to help the laborers' pension, and a brand-new uh, water and sewer tax for the municipal uh, pensions. Uh, all those together were supposed to raise a little more than $820 million a year uh, that would be pumped in uh, every year into the city's four-worker pension systems. Which is not uh, an insubstantial sum of money. No, it it it, it uh, pretty much doubled uh, what the city had been uh, paying previously, the inadequate amounts. But he also did did another thing after uh, trying to modify uh, the benefits and getting struck down by the Supreme Court. He he came up uh, and agreed with the unions on a new uh, payment plan that ramped uh, the payments up for the first five years and then went to a uh, type of uh, much more substantial funding that, uh, that was supposed to make the funds 90% funded over the next 35 years. So he agreed to, to do something to actually bring them up to adequate funding, whereas previous mayors hadn't, hadn't done that. So he deserves, deserves some credit for that. But, uh, but there's a catch. There, there, yeah, there is that. Even with those ramped-up payments and uh, what is now that extra eight hundred and twenty million dollars a year or so uh, going into the pension fund, uh, the debt, the amount that the city owes that it doesn't have the money to cover, uh, or the pension funds have, has has grown dramatically over the last four years since those property tax increases started. It started it uh, around. Uh, Twenty-three uh, billion dollars, and it increased to thirty billion over the last four years. Uh, the, the, the reasons for that are are complicated. But one is that you're still not paying in uh, between what the employees pay and the city pays. You're still not paying enough in to even cover the uh, pension benefits that are going out to retirees uh, every year still. And, and the city won't be doing that for uh, probably another 10 years or so or longer. Uh, the other reason, and that that increased the debt about $1.1 billion uh, because you're eating away at the investment, uh, which haven't been earning, at least in recent years, what they'd hoped they'd earn. But the, the, the bigger reason is that the pension funds, which had... Make certain assumptions. We'll earn so much money uh, on average every year, so that uh, we'll have the money we need to spend on the benefit. Uh, and pension been, pen, pension smoothing, they believe they call that, where it's the, taking right. that average rate of return and and, and projecting that out over uh, compounded compounding and those kinds of things. Right. Right. And. Uh, but what happened uh, was that they determined that they were expecting too much uh, return. It was around 8%, and all of them lowered them to the neighborhood of 7%, uh, and uh, which was probably, you know, responsible thing to do because it's more in line with what maybe they'll earn over time. But they also increased the uh, how long they expect people to leave. There's these really complicated actuarial charts that say certain people will live so long and you have to pay the benefits to them, you know, as long as, as they live. And they lengthen that because people are living longer. It, uh, probably, you know, sound things to do. But you take those two things together and a few other tweaks in the assumptions and uh, they figure they need $5.8 billion more than they, they had estimated before. So you take that uh with the, the with the outlay eating away at, at the investments, and you get to that uh, seven billion dollars in additional debt. City pension funds are twenty three uh, percent funded. That's the worst in the nation of any big city by far. All right. Well, Hal, we're going to uh, talk more about this, but we have to take a quick break. You're listening to the Sunday Spin on WGN. Welcome back to your Sunday Spin. I'm Rick Pearson of the Chicago Tribune here in the WGN Skyline studio. 
joined on the phone, but with Hal Dardick, investigative reporter, my colleague at the Chicago Tribune. We're talking about uh, the story that uh, he did involving the fact that hereafter, uh, under Mayor Emanuel, we had increased fees uh, aimed at trying to... uh, get a path to solvency on municipal pensions uh we did all this and we still uh, are in the hole by a, a greater amount of money than what was planned and you know how this this all comes from a backdrop of uh mayor lightfoot now and here we have uh you know her budget message coming up uh, the fact that the city already in itself running uh, $838 uh, million dollar deficit, according to her. Then there's these obligations. You touched on it, this pension ramp uh, to uh, accelerate payments into the uh, pension funds. Uh, that's, that's another uh, whole other issue of where does that money come from? Yeah, a big part of, of what she says she's facing uh, this year in terms of a uh, shortfall in, in next year's budget is uh, from the pension fund. She's counting that uh, in there uh, to her credit, uh, which previous mayors had not done. Uh, but that that alone is about two hundred and eighty million. And then you know another big chunk are the the big uh, salary increases that uh, she expects to see with the police and uh, fire contracts, but. So, but by far, the, the the pension over the next four years is going to need, on top of uh, the money that they're putting in there now, which is, uh, you know, in the neighborhood uh, of about two billion, they're going to need another nearly a billion dollars to put uh, in, into that fund uh, a year. Uh, at the end of the four years, so that is is uh, it's been called by the Civic Federation and others the, the biggest fiscal challenge that she faces during her uh, term in office. And I want to correct those figures; it, it's actually gone from 1.3 billion now to about 2.3 billion. But it's it's an even bigger increase than during the four years of uh, Mayor uh, Emanuel. So. You know, she's just facing a huge problem. How do you raise that money without shocking, you know, resorting to another major property tax increase uh, is very difficult. And her options are limited other than the property tax because that's the one thing she has the the power to do. but, you know, there's been a lot of other suggestions. One is that they did approve a Chicago casino, as we all know. Uh, but the way that was tax structure is on that, investors are likely to be very leery of, of even doing it. And that that could bring in, you know, maybe it, it, in the best of worlds, a couple hundred million a year for the police and the fire uh, pension fund. Another idea floated by, by some, and and uh, warned of by others is a pension obligation bond. Uh, it's it's been done in many locales around the country where you we did it in Illinois. Yeah, did it in Illinois. Uh, borrowed ten billion dollars. Uh, the problem with the way that that uh, it was done under uh, former Governor uh, Blagojevich is that instead of taking that ten billion dollars and giving it all to the funds and letting them invest it, he used, I think, about 25% of that money to make the payments he owed anyway. So you're basically uh, spending it uh, right away and not letting the pension funds invest it, and because of that, it ended up to be uh, a negative for the pension funds. Interestingly, if if they'd done that uh, correctly, considering the market's uh, at the time, put it on the pension funds, they would have come out uh, ahead. Uh, but but here's the thing. It, it's a huge risk to do these things. Some people say, oh, you're going to lower your interest rate because the bonds are cheaper than the amount of the growth in the pension funds, basically the interest on the, the, the pension debt. But if you invest it, and this has happened in other cities, and there's an economic downturn, that big chunk of money you threw in there, uh, you'll never catch up again, right. and you'll end up paying more. You've over just, time you've just kind of flushed it away right right and if you're fortunate and you invest at the right time uh then 
you, you could come out uh, ahead. But it's, there's no sure thing there. There's no sure thing. We've sure learned that about uh, pension funding in, in the state and in the city. Hal Dardick, investigative reporter, my colleague at the Chicago Tribune. As always, thank you so much for joining me this morning. Thank you for having me. Now back to the Tribune's Rick Pearson. It's the Sunday Spin on 720 WGN. Welcome back to your Sunday Spin. I'm Rick Pearson of the Chicago Tribune. I reported earlier that the Washington Post has a story that the uh, U.S. Ambassador of the European Union, Gordon Sondland, uh, will be testifying to Congress this week that the content of a text message he wrote denying a quid quo quid pro quo with Ukraine was relayed to him directly by President Trump in a phone call, and that Sondland doesn't know if the president was telling the truth or not. Earlier this week, Sondland was not going to testify uh, under the orders of the White House, and that prompted uh, House Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff to say once again the White House is uh, obstructing Congress. The failure to produce this witness, the failure to produce these documents, Um, We consider yet additional strong evidence of obstruction of the constitutional functions of Congress, a co-equal branch of government. There are four issues that we are looking at, at least four issues that we are looking at, all that go to the heart of our national security. And by preventing us from hearing from this witness and obtaining these documents, the President and Secretary of State are taking actions that prevent us from getting the facts needed to protect the nation's security. That's uh, House Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff. Now, as as I said, that was uh, before apparently a change of heart, and now Sondland will be testifying. Joining me now on the phone is Marianne Williamson. She's the Democratic candidate for President of the United States. Marianne, welcome to the show. Marianne? Okay, apparently we have lost contact with her. Uh, going back to the issue of Sondland testifying uh, before Congress this week, um, we have uh, even Republicans are saying they're very curious about uh, what uh, Sondland might be might have to say. Republican Congressman Adam Kinzinger from Shanahan, uh, he was on Fox News. And he says Sondland should be allowed to testify. Look, I, I think any time Congress calls somebody in to testify, um, it is the responsibility of that person to testify. So beyond just what Jim Jordan said, which is, you know, they're concerned about the treatment of the ambassador. And I have some sympathy for that viewpoint because I think Adam Schiff does a lot of selective leaking. But the reality is, if he's called in front of Congress, he should come testify. And if, if they really believe this is going to help exonerate the president, I don't, I don't know why they wouldn't do it. But look, this has just become such a process that every morning something changes. There's new tweets, there's new statements, there's new everything. The average Americans look at this going, this is just losing control. That's uh, Illinois Republican Congressman Adam Kinzinger. Now, uh, Illinois senior Democratic Senator Dick Durbin he was on CNN. We've heard a lot about these protests of going on in Hong Kong against uh, the government of Beijing, the crackdowns that have occurred, issue even spilling over into uh, the National Basketball Association, which is no longer conducting post-game press conferences, so players don't get asked about it uh, because they don't want to interfere with the NBA's relationship with the interests of China. Uh, Dick Durbin was on CNN and was asked about the protesters in Hong Kong. I'm on the side of these protesters in Hong Kong. What they're trying to do is to preserve a political approach that is much different than Beijing, particularly when it comes to being held accountable for crime. That's what initiated this, and it really has been a moment of definition for the future of Hong Kong. And if you think, if we are against corruption, if we are for American values, uh, I would say we would be joining, at least in spirit, the people in the street who are speaking out. Uh, This president has been strangely silent. That was Illinois senior Democratic Senator Dick Durbin. Well, hopefully joining me on the phone right now is Marianne Williamson, a Democratic candidate for president. She's been in Chicago for the past few days as a part of her campaign. Uh, Marianne, thank you so much for Hi. joining me. 
Thank you so much for having me. Sorry, uh, you got stuck in the uh, Chicago Marathon traffic. Yes, I know. I'm I'm on the side of the street right now. I'm sorry I couldn't make it to you. That's quite all right. Um, I wanted to ask you. You've obviously uh, you've been interviewed hundreds of times in in this campaign, and I'm, I, I guess number one, what's the question nobody's asked you? I don't think there is any question that nobody was asking. <laughs> Actually, but maybe you can come up with one. Well, I, I, oh, I, I, who knows? <laughs> we'll 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 do our best. Uh, tell me, uh, how do you see a, a path to victory in this huge field of Democratic presidential contenders? Well, as I've said many times, there are two political universes. One is the universe of the debates and the pundits and the DNC and the money and the polls. That's this, it's almost a, it's almost political entertainment in a way. And then there's another political universe, and that's talking to voters. That's actually being in the primary states, even here in Chicago, which is not an early, Illinois is not an early primary state. But the conversations I've had with voters Illinois women votes yesterday, different groups, Baptist ministers. I'm speaking this morning at Christ Universal Temple. When you're actually speaking to the American people, that's where democracy lives, in the minds and the hearts of people. And I find that Americans are aware that this is a very critical moment, and Americans, in my experience, are available for a deep and meaningful conversation about where we are, what needs to change, and how we need to make those changes. So I know that there is benefit to being there. I know that the American people, unlike, you know, many establishment forces, which just wants to shut down, shut down this process and let's get going now, I think the American people are in process. People are listening. I'm one of those people who thinks it's actually very positive, very healthy for our democracy and for the Democratic Party, that there are so many voices. Let people listen. That's what my experience is in the primary state. People are listening. People are thinking. People are processing. Now, none of us know what's going to happen tomorrow. But we do know that American politics is very unpredictable. God knows. Donald Trump is president. So as long as my heart says there's meaning and purpose to you're talking about things that other candidates are not talking about. You're going deeper into what the cause is of our symptoms. You're talking about the children. You're talking about economic injustice. You're talking about the things we need to do to reverse climate change. You're talking about what we need to change in our national security agenda and the United States reclaiming its moral authority around the world. And as long as people are showing up, as long as people are coming to your talks, as long as people are donating and keeping this alive, then then you're there. And you, when you recognize the forces that would look at someone like myself and say, you shouldn't be there, they are actually demonstrating why someone like me should be there. So, you know, you just kind of take the battering and you put another step forward because something more important is going on here than just deferring to a political elite. Who are those forces that say you well, shouldn't be you know, there? Is that the pundits and that kind of thing? Well, you know, there are, neither the pundits nor political establishment are a monolith. So there are very, uh, they're very conscious and ethical journalists who I have great respect for. And when you're, when you're talking about a presidential candidate, there's a level of healthy skepticism that I respect and even admire. I mean, that's their job to kick the tires. But then there's another, there's another layer of entertainment, of, of, I say entertainment, it was a Freudian slip. It's really more about entertainment and clicks than it is about media. And so they will mischaracterize, even lie, smear, take part in the kinds of things that are intentionally strategized to diminish a candidate in people's eyes. We went through that last time, and we're going through it now. Um, we know what happened last time where, you know, the, in the Democratic Party, the fingers, you know, DNC put their fingers on the scale, tipped it, you know, only it was that she had to be the candidate. And now it's just, okay, you can have one of these six. So I believe that it's the role of the media and political parties to facilitate 
the process of democracy, not to dictate the process of democracy. The power should be hand in the hands of the people. And the only purpose of media and political parties is to empower the voter, not to disempower them through such insidious means. We're speaking with Marianne Williamson, a Democratic candidate for president. She's here in Chicago. We're going to take a quick break. This is your Sunday Spin. Welcome back to your Sunday Spin. I'm Rick Pearson of the Chicago Tribune here in the WGN Skyline studio. Joining me on the phone is author and activist Marianne Williamson. She is a Democratic contender for the nomination for President of the United States, who is in Chicago, has been in Chicago for the past few days. Uh, Marianne, I was curious, uh, do you feel that all of this, the issue of impeachment and all of the attention that is going on surrounding uh, the move by House Democrats to investigate Donald Trump, whether that has kind of sucked out some of the oxygen in the room in this Democratic presidential campaign? Well, it has. But on the other hand, there's nothing we can do about that because the impeachment proceedings, I think, are valid and necessary. So this is one of those moments when Americans just have to make sure that we can walk and chew gum at the same time. Um, This is obviously impeachment uh, is a very dramatic type of situation, but there are a lot of dramatic situations going on at this time. Uh, This is simply a moment for all of us to hold a lot of um, a lot of a lot of things in our minds at the same time. You can't do politics as a part time uh, process today, can you? This really takes a lot of focus and a lot of attention, and I think that we can't be responsible citizens any other way. We simply have to watch impeachment and watch everything else. You know, it's not just that it sucks the energy out of the out of the the campaign. Too much of this sucks the energy out of the things we most need to be looking at. When we have 93 million people in America living in near poverty, when we have 100,000 homeless children in the United States, when we have elementary school students on suicide watch, when we have millions of American children who don't even have the classroom situation that allows them to learn uh, to read by, by the age of eight, and if they can't learn to read by the age of eight, the chances of high school graduation are drastically diminished. The chances of incarceration are drastically increased. When we have um, 43 million hungry Americans, when we have a national security agenda that is driven so much more by short-term uh, profits for the defense industry than by any proactive effort to declare and wage peace in the world, when we have the contaminants in our water, when we have the carcinogens in our food, when we have so many elements that lead to higher chronic illness among us and other nations. These are issues that we can't afford to distract ourselves from. And when we allow ourselves to be distracted, that is giving a pass to the political establishment, which wishes us to be distracted from those things, because so much of the money that floods the political establishment doesn't go towards helping people, because helping people in the situations that I just mentioned does not necessarily increase corporate profits. So, yeah, there's a, this is a moment in order to navigate navigate this moment we must all be deep thinkers and yeah there's a lot to think about and you know thomas paine said these are times that try men's souls and i think for a really thinking and conscious person today this is a trying time but uh it's our it's our generation's turn to rise to the occasion the way other generations have risen to the occasion in their times you are co-founder of the Peace Alliance, and you, uh, as part of your political platform, support the creation of a, a, a cabinet, U.S. Department of Peace. Given the uh, circumstances going on in Syria and the decision by the president to withdraw U.S. military from there, the Turkish uh, invasion of northern Syria, the, uh, and uh, the attacks on Kurdish allies, uh, I'm just curious, what are your views, the president saying, well, they've been fighting each other for hundreds of years? I think the president is completely wrong. Uh, I would not have removed those troops. You know, bring them home is not a foreign policy. It's just a slogan. It's just a cheap and easy knee-jerk slogan. The truth of the matter is the Kurds have been very loyal allies. Uh, our abandonment of the Kurds is not only immoral, 
but it is also a terrible signal that we're giving to other allies and prospective allies, saying that we cannot be necessarily trusted, that our word is not good. I think we all want troops brought home from the Middle East as, as soon as possible, but we must, uh, we, it's not just whether or not you exit, it's how you exit. So I think that um, uh, the president's move in Syria obviously had nothing, I, I don't believe that it had so much to do with an honorable uh, desire uh, to leave, so much as it had to do with distracting the American people from the impeachment inquiry and throwing red meat to his base. Um, so, no, I think it's terrible. And as you and I speak, as you and I speak, uh, a slaughter is occurring um, that is unconscionable for the United States to have even indirectly have participated in. I wanted to ask you about one of your signature issues in the campaign, which is uh, uh, advocating uh, reparations for slavery. And, and you've been a longtime uh, advocate of that. How would that work? My plan is for a reparations council. Now, the reparations council would be made of, let's say, 35 to 50 people, all of them descendants from American slaves, uh, from a wide array of academia, perhaps, and culture and politics. Uh, there is a professor named Sandy Darity, for instance, at Duke University, uh, who has done extensive work on the topic of reparations. Uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates has written about, about it and so forth. My idea and the plan that I put forth is for $500 billion that would be dispersed over a period of 20 years. And the stipulation on the part of the U.S. government would be that the money is to be uh, used for purposes of educational and economic renewal. Now, let's remember, this is an economic stimulus this is not a debt that the United States is losing. This will actually contribute to the United States economy. There was a study done recently that if black Americans earned as much wealth as white Americans, white families, that our, our economy would be $1.5 trillion larger. But for me, while that's a good thing, um, it's it's good because doing the right thing always leads to good, ultimately. And the United States, just like any individual, cannot have the future we want unless and until we're willing to clean up the past. Addressing the economic gap between black and white that was created by three and a half centuries of institutional violence against blacks is simply a moral imperative. It is a blessing not only on black America, on white America. I don't see, for me as a candidate, this is not a black agenda. This is an American agenda. It's time to take the next big step. Just like Germany did. Germany paid $89 billion in, in reparations to Jewish organizations after World War II. And while it doesn't mean that the Holocaust didn't happen, it has gone far towards establishing reconciliation between Germany and the Jews of Europe. And I believe that it's time for the United States to take this step as well. That's Marianne Williamson. She is a Democratic candidate for the nomination for President of the United States. Marianne, thank you so much for joining me this morning. Thank you very much for having me.